Welcome to the Yours in Marketing podcast. Hey, it's Blake here. If this is the first time that you're joining us on the Yours in Marketing podcast, do me a favor. Please go wherever you get your podcast, doesn't matter where, and please review, rate, subscribe to the podcast right now. Well, or after the episode, whichever works for you. We're really looking for your support so that we can build this and make it even more valuable for you. So please rate, review, and subscribe the Yours in Marketing podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. This week on the Yours in Marketing podcast, I was able to speak with Kelly Glover, the founder of The Talent Squad. And our heavy focus on this episode is on podcasting. Specifically, if you're a company or a person that's trying to get booked on more podcasts, exactly how to do that. So the three things you'll learn here, first and foremost, just that, how to get booked on podcasts. Second, we discuss the perfect elements that go into the perfect pitch. And then finally, how great podcasts actually grow their audiences. So whether you have a podcast yourself or you're looking to go on other people's podcasts to build your brand and get the word out about something, this is a fantastic episode for you to up your pitch game and to get booked on more podcasts. So without any further ado, here is the episode with Kelly Glover. Okay, so on the Yours in Marketing podcast today, I'm with Kelly Glover. You're the founder of the Talent Squad, among probably other things that you're doing as well, but we'll talk about that. How are you doing today, Kelly? I'm doing well, thanks, Blake. How are you? Fantastic. It's been a great day so far, and I'm excited to interview you and talk a little bit about podcasting, but also I definitely want to dive into your story. It's very interesting. I think there's a lot to uncover here. So I want to start not like not all the way at the beginning. We'll We'll fast forward a little bit past that point, but just just kind of getting into, I guess, your education. Obviously, you can see that in your education, a lot of it is media focused. You're dealing with video and learning about media and radio and all of these different things. And I'm just curious right off the bat if that's what you always knew you were going to do or if that really just came about as you were going to college. No, I always wanted to do it. So I was in high school in the 90s. And a lot of the shows were Ricky Lake, Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, Old School Oprah. So I always wanted to be a talk show host. So um, yeah, I've always wanted to be in media and I ended up in radio, which was kind of the closest to that that I could possibly get. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was always my quest. I always wanted to be in media. Now, if you had your choice of any talk show that's currently going right now that you could take over, if they're like, we want to offer you the gig. Which? What would be your ideal talk show to just totally commandeer? Wendy Williams, obsessed. I think she's ex-radio and she, like her or dislike her, she's a very skilled host. So I love her. I'm, always, I'm also a fan of panel shows like The View. So just shows where you get to chitty chat about current things is pretty much my jam. Awesome. <laughs> well, I think we have a lot to dive in here. So Let's let's start talking about your career. After you get past your education, you you attended, let's see, you, you went to University of Newcastle, which is in mm-hmm. England, right? Uh no, no, in Australia. It's in Australia. Okay, so there's a Newcastle yeah. in England, and there's I guess there's also yeah. one in Australia. Okay. Yeah, so Australia, all our towns, a lot of them are named because, you know, from sure. the from England, we we have copycat names for pretty much carbon copies for every town. So yeah, named after the original Newcastle. Got it. Okay. And then you went to the US to go to Ohio University. Yeah. So that was also based on a TV show as well. Like I'm a TV kid, right? <laughs> so there was a show in the 90s called Felicity. And it was a girl at dorms in college. And I looked at it and went, I want to be Felicity. I want to go to a US college. I want to live in the dorms. So I did an exchange from Newcastle University to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. They had a video department and I loved it and ended up graduating from there. So instead of, I went from being an exchange student to a full-time student, did the resident assistant thing, did a few internships in Hollywood. So it wow. was amazing. What, what was the experience like going from an Australian school, all of a sudden going to the US? What were the, the key differences that you noticed? Oh, the American school, you have the college, it's a college life on campus, very different to Australia, which is sort of you commute and just, you know, go to school. Mm. So it was everything that I hoped for, but this is before Facebook was invented. Nobody had a mobile phone. So it was a completely different, yeah, to me, I was living in a movie. (laughs) Got it. And I loved, 
I loved every minute of it. It was the best. And then, so you have these internships in Hollywood, but then eventually you go back to Australia, right? Yeah. So I was, um, I interned for Miramax in Hollywood. And then the following year, I interned for Miramax in London. Um, ended up working at Miramax in London for a year. I just got into a situation where I kept running out of my working visas. Mm-hmm. I would max out on them. Uh, so after that, I was a tour guide for a year in Europe to do a little bit of a you know gap year while I was there. I was an entertainment reporter in Hollywood. I kept coming back to that. And then in Australia, I was a talent agent. So um, yeah, I came back to Australia after I ran out of all my overseas visas. <laughs> <laughs> and that could be a stressful process with all, dealing with all the visas, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I know all the visas for yeah a lot of things. So, um, yeah. So I got into being a talent agency, but it was still following the um, the path. Mm-hmm. It was still on the same path. Sure. So how does that align with when you first started your career, going back to when you are at the talent agency in Australia, when you come back, compared to what you do now, what's the biggest difference? And is your career kind of gone the way that you thought it would go? Or have you experienced a lot of twists and turns? No, it hasn't because I'm working in an industry in a medium that wasn't invented when I went to university and or was in high school. So podcasting was not invented. Mm -hmm. The technology that I used when I was being taught in university at Newcastle and in Ohio is probably obsolete now and new things are popping up all the time. But I do think it is still on the same path. So after working at a talent agency, um, I started community radio and thought, I'm pretty good at this. I might just apply to the, I don't know, national school where they take 10 (laughs) people a year thinking I would never get in Uh and somehow got in. So then I did an advanced um, diploma in commercial radio broadcasting and that's how I got into radio. Um, And even then, podcasting was just coming in. Mm -hmm. But the skills that you learn from working in the movie business, working as an interviewer, interviewing celebrities, working on air as an announcer and working in talent, all parlay into working at the talent squad and opening up my own agency. So I've taken the best elements from everything that I've done and packaged it up into this business. I'm curious to know, radio and podcasting obviously are fairly similar and podcasting is basically just taking the radio and making it accessible through the internet. But I'm curious as to what the major differences are, having been on both sides of that, having competed or, or, or I guess, worked at a high level in both mediums. Yeah. So podcasting, I got the my first podcast, I'm trying to think back, was in about 2007. That's before I went to radio school. I was in community radio. And at the time, that was pulling the audio off the logger after the show had gone live, removing the songs and removing the... Um, the commercials. Mm. That's what a podcast was. (laughs) It was a cut down radio show and it was really complicated. It took ages and even just the uploading, it was a whole process and you had to follow it on a sheet of paper and like, good luck if you got it right back in the day. (laughs) Now you record it and you upload a file. It's pretty, it's it's so simple. Um, When I got into podcasting, I'm yeah, people in radio were laughing at me. That's just how it goes. It was amateur. It's a guy under a blanket. It's what are you doing? I can't believe you're leaving this. We're high, you're low, this whole situation. And now radio is getting into podcasting and all those people are coming to me asking me questions Mm -hmm. and I'm kind of a leader in the field where I was at the bottom in a swamp. (laughs) You know, that's what podcasting was at the time. So it's kind of great seeing the evolution of the medium and how the perception of podcasting has changed to the radio industry. But I understand because no one knew what it was going to be and it's still evolving. So I do understand that perception. Sure. And there, and there are obviously tons and tons and tons of people, millions of people that have podcasts now. It's so widespread as compared to when you first started in it. I'm sure that you were one of the few that were really on that bandwagon at the time. But I'm curious on your thoughts, if you think that having so many podcasts out there now has actually been better or worse for the quality of content that's being produced. Oh, I think it goes both ways. So the latest stat that I've seen is there's 750,000 podcasts, right? How many of those are live? We don't know. How many have 
you know, whatever number of episodes. Mm -hmm. Like there could be podcasts out there that haven't been live in three years and have one episode. So I would really love to see the stats of number of episodes and or current podcasts. Like That will come to light hopefully one day, Mm -hmm. but not now. Um, I think that it was with the whole ham radio concept back in the day, but I think that... I think there's been a, I think it's gone both ways, to be honest, Blake. It's Mm -hmm. gone super professional with all the agencies stepping in. Like I was watching the news the other day and one of the anchors commented to the other anchors about their podcast. Imagine that even two years ago. That would never happen. So you've got the William Morris Endeavor, UTA, CAA, all the letters of the agencies in Hollywood coming in. Um, So it's going super professional on one level and then it's going to the other level where people are just recording on their laptop at home, mm-hmm. putting something up instantly without a headphones or a mic. So I think the gap is widening between both areas. And is it a bad thing? No, I don't think it is. I don't think it's bad whatsoever. People want to listen to a podcast about escalators and <laughs> they can do that immediately and good on you. Sure. So, <laughs> so I just support it from no one's making you listen. It's not taking up airspace on a national channel. It's on demand. So what, I don't see the bad thing in it. Absolutely. What what year, I, I think you mentioned 2007 was when you first kind of got into it. But what year do you think that podcasting actually became quote unquote cool or socially acceptable or a viable way to grow your business? Yeah, well, I think it was, was it 2013 that Serial came out? So. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that's when it got of note, but I would say, and I've been in it. So I've been to a lot of the podcasting conferences. I think I've been to four of podcast movement and just what I have seen with people attending that conference year after year is a change in the audience, in the audience of the conference. Um, oh, when was it cool? I don't know. I, I feel like a lot's happened in the last two years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been working in podcasting full-time for five years now and it just feels like it's in the last five years, it's just hit fast forward 10x. What What are the key differences in that time period then from like 2013 um, to now? Um, advertisers coming in, media coveraging it, all the newsletters coming out, covering it, going into the trade papers, all these agencies opening up, not just advertisers, but also the the networks opening up, celebrities coming into it. Yeah, there's been a lot happening across all these different verticals in a short period of time. And I think the other thing is companies have been burrowing away behind the scenes and not saying anything. And then all of a sudden they'll come out with content. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of behind the scenes, which, yeah, it's smart. That's business. That's what happens. And there's lots of consolidation and companies are buying other companies. So I think it's gone from amateur to professional with a big gap in between. Interesting. I'd I'd love to... What are are your thoughts? What are your thoughts, Blake? You've seen it as well and you're a podcaster yourself. So so what's my perception and experience is very different to other people. So what's yours? Sure. I mean, when, when I started, I was doing my own podcast in a closet. Um, now I'm, you know, I have a studio and I'm, I'm doing this for a company. So it's a little bit, I've, I've graduated the, the technicality of it, I guess. But from, from the time that I started a few years ago to now, I think the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing is just the sheer amount of people, amount of businesses in particular that are just willing to, like you said, like start telling their story when they've kind of been silent all this time. And then all of a sudden, oh, it turns out that, you know, the X company has some kind of story to share and now they are. I think that's that's really interesting and still something that is developing as businesses figuring out how to actually make this work effectively for them. I still think that's that part of it's a little bit in its infancy, but you definitely have seen a lot more of the nitty gritty of podcasting than I have. I've been very ignorant in my just, you know, doing my little show and and trying to carve my own path there. Yeah, I think that... I think with podcasting as well, people have seen it as I want a podcast, I need lots of listeners, that equals downloads and I make money from commercials. Mm -hmm. It's been a very basic and linear concept of what a podcast is. People are starting to realize that sometimes the audience isn't actually the target of a podcast, it can actually be the guest on the show. Um, Lots of branded podcasts and I've produced 
to mid six figure ones that, you know, had more than a million downloads that were pretty successful for a brand. So they're realizing that branded podcasts, but that's even changing in a short period of time too. And then I think the thing that people haven't yet hit is podcasts for other purposes, like internal podcasts for corporations as a way of communicating to prospective customers, clients, staff, and their own internal staff mm-hmm. is going to be a way that the mediums use. So it's not necessarily an external facing entertainment interview only plus commercials medium. People need to think of it in a different way because it has not, yeah, you need to think of it in a different way just as question and answer format with commercials. So that's coming. Sure. We, we, we kind of just talked a little bit about who has a podcast and who should have a podcast, why podcasting's grown. But I'm curious to the flip side of that for businesses, for marketers that are kind of looking, hey, I want to build my brand. I want to increase my sales for my company. I'm wondering if you could enlighten us a little bit on who should not have a podcast. Oh, um, I think I think there's two ways. So at the Talent Squad, we book po- podcast tours for entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are thinking about a podcast but unsure about the strategy to it, you can always go as a guest on shows and experience it from the other side before jumping in and pod fading like all those thousands of shows, mm-hmm. tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands <laughs> of shows. So you don't have to have a show to succeed and or benefit from podcasts. So that's just one way of thinking about it. Should, should everyone have a show? no, not everyone is going to have a show, nor do you need a show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there, there's like a, there are a lot of people, especially in marketing right now, I talk to a lot of people that think I need to build up a podcast because that's what other people are doing. And it's a, it's a dangerous no. place to be when you're, when you're thinking of no. things like I should do that just because other people do it. Yeah, the way I say it is, do you want to throw one party a year or do you want to be a guest at 50 parties a year? I'd rather be a guest on other people's shows than build and talk to my own audience all the time. I'd rather speak to 50 other audiences. So, but again, it depends It depends on each business mm-hmm. and what the purpose of that is. Or the other way is, do you want to have your own show, be the, you know, the party thrower in that scenario and invite the specific guests you want because you've got the platform. So that's another way to go. You can then have, I'm just using the number 50 as an example, access to 50 people you normally wouldn't have access to, to speak to 30 to 50 minutes, which often would be like, imagine if you paid that for a one-on-one session, Mm -hmm. and then you've now got a relationship with those people that you may not have had access to. That is equally, and if not more beneficial than having an, uh, an audience of listeners. So there's many ways to look at podcasting and marketing when it comes to this. Yeah. And, and that takes us really to your expertise, which is booking interviews for clients, helping people actually get on other podcasts, not necessarily building a podcast, which is obviously one of those areas where I think most people would say, first and foremost, if I want to get the benefits of podcasting that I need to start my own. But what you're saying really is why not just diversify as much as possible and not worry about building out your own infrastructure, but capitalize on the infrastructure of others. So talking about, you know, the bulk of your efforts focusing on helping clients get interviews on good podcasts, what are some of those key foundational elements to a great pitch that you really consult people on? Yeah. So before we pitch shows, I would say you need to have, there's a step before that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people miss it and go, I just want to be on a show. Awesome. So do I. Mm-hmm. But do you have your messaging in place? Do you have your talking points in place? Do you have your um, assets, that one sheet, the press kit online? Do you have everything ready to take to market? Because you get one chance to pitch that show. And if you don't have your website ready, your socials ready, your messaging ready, if it doesn't look right, then even if you're not going to get a yes. Um, and even if you do get a yes, I'm interested, when they cross-check and verify you across platforms, it might turn into a no. Mm. So you really need to have step one is getting everything ready before you even look for a show to pitch. And I think that's something that people miss or have heart faked and that then affects step two, which is the pitching. It, it, so if you have all of your messaging correct and everything, would you recommend at that point to compile a huge list of shows you'd be interested in doing? Or would you rather have them narrow in on one show they really want to get on and focus more efforts on that that way? 
Well, no, I would get a pitch list together and then pitch multiple shows because you're not guaranteed that that one show is going to be a yes. You still have to um, source source the show, like what show do I want to go on? Mm. And then you've got to go through an entire vetting process to see if the show is still a fit for you and if you are a fit for that show. Um, often people will pitch shows where they don't even have guests. Well, that's a fail. Um, or there's a show that you found, but they might not have published an episode in the last six months, two years. So you can't pitch that. So there's a whole process before you even send the email through. And if you pitch one show and it's a fail, then okay, what next? Mm-hmm. Like you have to, the pitching ratio is not one-to-one. Just finding a show and doing a good pitch doesn't necessarily, you might mean that you'll get on the show. You're also competing with the back catalogue of guests. So you need to look at who has been on the show and are you in that calibre? Like if the last guy on the show was um, Richard Branson and Vaynerchuk, you're probably, unless you're in that level and if you are, excellent. But if you're not, you may it may not be the best show to pitch at this time. Mm-hmm. If you get to that level, awesome. But if not, then you're probably spending a lot of time pitching a show that you might not be at the caliber of pitching just yet. So there's a lot of considerations. And that's before you've even written the subject line, yep. which takes longer than you think and really does need to be clickbait that actually delivers. And that's getting part of your messaging right. And also, what does the show want? Like, what else have they covered? Not only who are the guests, but what content have they covered? Because if they've covered something that you're pitching, then you need to come up with something else to fill the gaps. Do you have, do, so, yeah, and a follow yeah. up to that, if, if if you have a specific research process for that, because I know for me, like if if I'm looking to get to pitch a, a podcast that's been around for three years and they have 300 episodes, it can be difficult to kind of know all of the content that they've tackled. Do you have a specific research process for that to make it a little bit easier to determine where you could add that value or is it really just manually one by one you have to it's go It's manual. It's manual and that's the thing. Can you pitch yourself to podcasts? Yes. The only thing is it does take time. If you're willing to put that time in, absolutely do it. It's so beneficial. If you're not, that's when people with the PR budget or marketing budget hire an agency because they've had years of sourcing, vetting and pitching thousands of shows. So they have that back catalog. So we're already on the front foot. We're not just going to pitch a show. Mm. You have to go through that process. And then even if there was a show that I think you're a fit for, I have to go back and cross check and verify because by the last time that I pitched it, they will have had new episodes come to light. So I've got to consider that as well. So it's highly, highly tailored, highly um, targeted and specific to the show, the each show. Like there's people, they'll cut and paste. Hi, mm-hmm. insert host name, loved episode 329 on blah, blah, blah. Want to be a guest on the show. This is all about me. That's not the way that we do it. Um, and I would suggest not just doing a copy and paste generic flattery two-line pitch and then do your copy and paste. Um, that's probably not going to get you through the gate. I, I'd love to dive into the to specific elements that you use then because I there are certainly those where you can use a template. That can work some of the time. There are other ways that I guess you could pitch, but are, is there like a secret sauce that you recommend to people that historically has performed really well in terms of just getting a response from a pitch? Yeah, like you need to have a killer subject line. Otherwise, it may not even get opened. And that takes work. So that's sort of copywriting and headline formulas and knowing the content of the show um, and also knowing how much of the headline that you're right is actually going to get show up in the email. So we'll often test that as well uh, on how many words will fit in and what shows up in that in the first line of the email because you've got to think how the host receives it and or producer receives it. The pitch is just the first step for them to vet you. Mm -hmm. Often they won't just say yes to a pitch. That's like, okay, well, let me look more. Then they're going to go to your website, your one sheet, your online press kit, and they'll make a decision for themselves because they're also looking for things. So my background is as a producer in addition to being on radio. So I'm the person that does that process. So I know what hosts are actually looking for. Um, So you've got to think, you've got to reverse it and think what are they looking for and then present that information. So it's the talking points, it's the one sheet, it's the subject line, it's the introductory making a reference to what they actually need. Mm -hmm. Um, And then even down to the language that you use. So you need to reflect the show's language while still staying true to your, your branding and your language. So 
it, it's a lot of um, finesse in a pitch that looks pretty simple, but is actually quite complex. To me, I love it and it's totally <laughs> fun. But um, for other people, they just want to do a cut and paste. Sure. Um, and that's fine. You can do that. And if it works for you, awesome. But I wouldn't exactly count on a one-to-one ratio of I'm just going to send this and I'm going to get a yes and then I'm going to mm-hmm. do the show. Absolutely. And yeah. what, but, but what's your experience been? Because you must get pitched all the time. So how many pitches do you get, Blake? And what are you looking for as a host for people to come on your show? I'm sure everyone will be interested in hearing that. Yeah, so it's, we're, still, we're still kind of in our infancy here, kind of growing this thing. So pitch-wise, uh, we're still working on our our uh, our branding to to get out to get to a point where we are getting pitched all the time. But with the pitches that I do get, I it does take a lot of vetting. And I'm, I'm certainly careful about looking at people that are just boilerplate. Anytime I see that right off the bat, I know, okay, that that's demoted about 50% in my mind, but I'll still read it because I want to, you know, I want to see things through. Maybe they just aren't a strong writer or something, and maybe they have some clear value for the audience. But ultimately, it boils down, down to that for me. If I can discern right away, this is this is the value to my audience. The listeners are going to get X and X out of this. Then I know that I can at least pursue it and have another discussion with them. Then there are certain, so, certain people that I know right off the bat, yes, that's that's going to be a perfect fit. Yeah. So you're looking for the value in the content, not necessarily the story of the person. And I think that's a mistake people make. They come in and go, hi, Blake, um, I'd love to be on your show. Here's all the stuff about me. Mm -hmm. I say, if my response is, so what, who cares? Start again. And you need to look at it as if that email was coming to you. No one really cares about the person unless you're Richard Branson or, you know, a star in your field. Um, They actually care about the content and what you're going to teach the audience. So I suggest coming in with a different way because most interview shows are actually about the topic and the content rather about the person and their story. And the same goes with authors and books. It's what's in the book and you as the author, not necessarily I want to come and talk about the book. Mm -hmm. So for so for people out there that are experienced that are podcast hosts or are looking to improve this, um, what what is or or even you know for for pitching, I guess, how can we improve upon communicating our value? Like what what's the process that you've taken with other people to help them understand this is how you find what the value is you're producing, and here's how you can actually communicate it effectively. Yeah. So great question. So you need to look at the host, the show and the audience and what does that audience want to learn? Mm -hmm. Is there something specific and tactical that they can do and understand by the end of that episode that they can take away? So you're the expert in your field. We know that you know your expertise. What can you actually teach someone? And it's also using case studies, using stories, using facts and figures. Um, so it's a num it's a number of things, but also what are other people talking about? If people are talking about the same thing, you need to zig when they zag. So it's where's the white space? Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, like, is it white space for a reason? Is no one talking about it because no one cares? Well, that's not somewhere to go. But what is no one else talking about but should be? So the key is but should be. Got it. Okay. Um, and then there are a couple other elements to this that you've mentioned. For example, a one sheet, a, a press kit or media kit. Uh, for for in-house marketers or people that are kind of looking to start out, but they don't know what those things are, why they're important. Could you just kind of dive into the one sheet and explain what, what should be on there to give you the best shot at garnering attention and kind of piquing interest? Yeah. So a one sheet is an abbreviated media kit. Mm-hmm. So it's one a one-page PDF that we would send to the hosts. And um, often it's made in Canva these days, so you can do it yourself or you can get a designer if your pants at Canva, <laughs> <laughs> depending on your level of design mm-hmm. skill. Um, so that would have your name as the headline pretty extremely big and clear so everybody can see it your headshot that fits in with your branding. And then it has your talking points and sometimes it has sample questions on there plus a bio. So a host would go and have a look and it would say Kelly Glover, the talent squad, podcast guest booking agent. And then I'd have sample things that I can speak about on there. Um, And then it would have some links to social media and scheduling and it's a beautifully designed page. So in looking at that, you, you Blake would say, okay, does she, what does it look like? Does it visually fit with my brand? Her talking topic's good. Okay, yes, that's of interest to me. I'm going to go a step further and I'm going to go to her website, go to her hear things, look at previous interviews and vet to make my decision. 
not often the one sheet is not the instant yes. Mm -hmm. It's the gateway to the vetting process. So I would have that and I would send it with every pitch, but a one sheet does not take place of the pitch. It's supplemental. So the talking points on the one sheet are different to the talking points in the pitch, which are again different to the talking points in the online press kit. So does that answer the question with regards to the the one sheet? Do you have anything on that? Sure. Um, no, I think, just, yeah. Yeah, and then and then how it relates to obviously you said it's kind of an abridgment of the press kit. So what what other elements outside of what's already in the one sheet need to be in the press kit? Yeah. So the online press kit is has everything in it. The one sheet is like, if you think of going into a bakery, you know how you just get the little sampler in there? It's like, mm, delicious. Yeah, I want that chocolate cake. Well, the press kit is the entire chocolate cake, right? So that's got your scheduling link. It has headshots in there that um, are the high res, a collection of them that you can download. Mm-hmm. So you want the host, this is once you've been booked on a show, you want them to use an approved professional shot that you've done rather than going to Google and finding some random photo that you don't really like. You also want your logos in there. So I'd have your full color logo, a square logo, a transparent logo. They'll often use that in the media for the promotion. Um, You want a range of bios. So you have, yeah, the super long bio, the one that you wish they would read. Mm -hmm. But then you have your shorter ones because often hosts will read the provided intro as your intro on the show. So that way you get in there or everything you want, like, the talent squad, well, you don't want them saying talent squad. You want them saying the talent squad. So it's getting that correct, right? Mm. If you're an author, you want an, a, a range of book covers in there. You want downloads to the books so they can read that in advance. Then you've got your talking points. If you've thrown out a few talking points in the pitch and in the one sheet, this is the chance to have multiple categories. It's not for the host to, you're not telling the host what to do. You're just saying, here's an example of where you can start, pick what you want and go from there. Also downloads, you can have videos of if you've got a TED Talk, put that in there or previous interviews, put past podcast interviews in there. And of course, the contact information with your scheduling link. And then, yeah, I think that's pretty much what you need in the press kit. You can you can add more as you want, but it's what the producer needs to do the research on you for the show. So you're cutting down time plus your socials. Like if you've got your personal social, your business social, your podcast social, your books, like sometimes it can be 15 socials. <laughs> so I like having that in there to save the person going on a wild goose hunt. Got it. So it sounds like so far from what I can gather is what the typical person does for reaching out to get booked on a guest pod or to be a guest on a podcast is not necessarily all that they should be doing. I think they're the the average person is not going nearly as in depth as they could if they wanted to have a much better chance. And I think these are really great points to help us just level up our game a little bit more, um, taking it to the next step. If if we're really good at the copywriting side of pitching, but we're not, we don't necessarily have the media kit and all of that set out so that people can do their own research on us, then we're really li- missing out on an opportunity. Is this something that you run into often where? You, you get a new client and they just have no clue what any of this is. Yeah, but also we are a professional agency. This is what we do mm-hmm. day in and day out. And we are representing people, sending them to the media to be interviewed. So that's different than someone just sending an email pitch to themselves. And that's why often hosts quite like dealing with agencies because they know if I've got a client, they're going to have all this stuff ready to go and they can get on that call within, you know, 24 hours, whatever, Mm -hmm. on the spot and have everything ready to go in their research as opposed to somebody DIYing and not having all the things in place. If you are presenting yourself as someone to be interviewed on podcast, you're presenting yourself as a media professional. So you should have all these things in place to present yourself as such. Definitely. And I want to talk about a couple of different tactics as well that you've recommended. First and foremost, uh, you've talked about the, the quote out there is that the podcast tour is the speaking gig you don't have to leave the house to do. So there, yes. are, there are a lot of people out there that are really high on, on the speaking circuit. Uh, they, they love doing that. Brings great ROI for the business. I think it's fantastic. Obviously, I would, I would just like to know, how does the ROI of podcasting legitimately stack up against the ROI of doing a conference circuit if you're doing kind of the same amount of events? I, I guess on ROI, my question is, how are you tracking? 
in order to compare on ROI, we need to have the tracking data on that. And often you don't have that on speaking gigs mm-hmm. and, and or podcasts. So I'm not sure on that element of it, but I can tell you on the saving element of it, if you're doing a podcast from your home and or office, you're saving on the Uber going to the airport, the time waiting in the line to get on the flight, the flight time, the getting to the hotel time, the checking in, the, you know, so there's a lot of time and money saved by doing a podcast. And instead of speaking to a room, like say you went to a conference and did a speaking gig to a room of 500 people, awesome, amazing. Yes, you're meeting them in person. Speaking gigs are excellent, obviously. But if you did a podcast to 500 people, people think, oh, you know, that number's not so big, it's not worth my time. But I actually think it is. And also that podcast is on demand for years to come. Mm -hmm. But that room is there for that 30 minutes that you have that room for. So think of yourself, think of a podcast as an ongoing speaking gig that anybody can walk into that room at any time, any hour of the day, any country and listen to that speaking gig. And it's, it's interesting as well to consider the other side of it. And I think you've touched on this a little bit, but when you're, when you're trying to be a speaker at conferences, how much practice do you have to go through? How much do you have to refine your talk that you're going to give or your speech and kind of re- do your research on the audience in the specific conference? There's so much that goes into it, but how much do we actually prepare ourselves for podcast interviews and to be the best possible guest for that particular podcast episode on that day and practice our talking points. And I, I think that's really interesting. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. And if, I mean, I, I guess if you have any tips on actually preparing for an interview once you booked it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually step three that you happen to have hit on. So step one's the messaging, step two's the pitching, and step three is the interview. Something else that people often miss is they think, oh, great, I've landed the interview. Let me just show up and chitty chat on the mic. Mm-hmm. That is one strategy, but I think um, at the Talent Squad, we say winging it is a waste. And I think you really need to prepare because unlike the conferences where you go in the 30 minutes, it's the people in the room, with podcasts, they're pretty much there forever right? So you need to make sure that you strategically make it to your benefit. If you're a speaking gig, you're in charge of everything, but in a podcast, you're a guest. So has the person read the book? Chances are they probably haven't. So you need to ask and answer your own questions in the interview. In the podcast interview, you need to use your keywords. If it's going to get transcribed into, well, transcribed word for Mm -hmm. word or used in show notes, that's a chance for you to get your keywords in there. And then that's SEO. So it will show up in, you know, various search engines. They're changing all the time with how podcasts are getting, getting noticed in Google and different things. So who knows where that will end up. And so if you're on, say, we were talking 50 podcasts for as, as an example, well, that's 50 link backs you're getting to your site as well. So you need to think about, asking and answering your own questions. If you don't get asked the questions that you want, using stories, using examples, using keywords. So there's a lot you can do in the interview. And in order to do that, you need to have listened to the show. You don't want to go in being all jokey if it's a highly technical buttoned up show Mm -hmm. and you don't want to do the inverse either. So there is homework that you need to do, but the benefit I think is pretty long-term. Another tactic that you mentioned as well is using Facebook groups to kind of find opportunities to get booked. I'm wondering if you could take us through your personal process for that, just getting in Facebook groups and trying to find ways to get booked through that. Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that you can find shows. You can go in, um, you know, iTunes is normal. Mm-hmm. Well, that not normal. Is it an easy way? Google's an easy way. But there's lots of Facebook groups that are podcast specific. And on a Tuesday, they might say, okay, do you need a guest or are you a guest? The, the trick is you need to follow the rules and do it only on the, on the day. Don't just start spamming saying, Hey, I'm a podcast guest. I talk about business. Mm-hmm. Cause then again, so what? Who cares? <laughs> but if they're asking on a Tuesday for guests, yeah, they're people looking for shows. They're going to cross check and verify as normal, but that's a pretty easy way to, you know, pitch yourself. Um, with podcasts, the thing is, It is quite competitive and more so now than it used to be. So if you're doing a weekly show, there's only 52 spots. And if a show's getting pitched 50 times a day, you know, that's thousands of pitches a year that you're competing against. And that's why you've got to have your messaging and pitching on place because just because a person or a show is offering up a spot or has one available doesn't mean you just get it because it's available. You still need to be the best person and offer up a targeted pitch. Mm. Is there like an extra tier of 
of quality when, when you're competing against so many different podcasts. If, if let's say out of those 50, if 10 of them have all the things that you've mentioned, they have a great press kit, they have a, a one sheet, they have all their talking points, the copy and the email was really enticing. If 10 of those are world-class like that, is there another tier of, of something that you can do to even stand out above that? Oh, there's, yeah, a lot of people will interact with the host before they even send a pitch, laying down the foundation of a relationship. Because at this point, if you're just finding a show, that's a cold pitch. Mm -hmm. You're pitching out of the blue, something someone hasn't asked for, you're putting yourself forward. That's fine. We get, we cold pitch. That's pretty much what we do. I mean, we do have relationships, but, um, doing the, but we also, yeah, have relationships with, the big agencies. So we walk in and find out their roster and what they need. So we have a direct line to that, which most people don't. But um, but doing a one-on-one relationship with the host, leaving ratings, leaving reviews, a lot of people like doing that and just jumping on social and commenting on past episodes. So it's the whole Vaynerchuk, jab, 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 right hook yep. situation I think a lot of people use. Awesome. Well, that that answers a lot of, I mean, I've learned a ton about booking, but I'm, I'm also interested because I know the bulk of, of what you like to do is booking and up to the interview and getting people prepared for that. But I know that you have a lot of expertise post interview and, and once it's published and goes live and, and all of that. And I'd love to do a thought experiment if you'll indulge me and just answer a couple simple questions that I think a lot of people have, especially people looking to start their own podcast. Um, but this can also apply to, you know, to, to other people as well. But if, if you were starting a, a new podcast in your niche, beginning with at zero, no followers, no ad spend available, um, very modest social media following. So just, you know, an average start of the podcast. What what would your foundational steps be in starting to grow that in the right direction? First of all, I would have amazing artwork because when people are going through iTunes, um, if you have a photo of yourself on your show and you're not famous, often that's a fail because it's like, who are you? And the text is small. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the show about? So I think packaging up the show and people don't think of it that way, but really have a plan in place and be clear on who the audience is, the look of the show, the content of the show and the copywriting of the show, and then make the content really good and searchable. Um, that is the foundation of, yeah, the foundation of a good podcast. And then, yeah, you can post in groups. You can put the link in, you can post all your, I guess, awareness is what you're talking about. That's the step that you have to do if you've got no budget. So it would be posting around places. You can even do live broadcast to audiences or be a guest on other people's shows and do cross promotion. That is a way of not spending money, but spending time. You're not Mm going to get away with you can you might get away with spending limited money, but you're not going to get away with spending limited time. The investment of time is definitely there in setting up this process. It's a long haul. There is no instant to podcasting. There's not. I'm very curious as to, as you mentioned, we were talking about ROI of conferences and things like that. Um, I'm very curious to know what your definition of ROI is for when you go on podcast interviews, because I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are curious about that and just trying to figure out really what's valuable to them and why they would want to go on interviews themselves. Yeah, so podcasts are earned media. If you want to have a definitive audience and you want to go out to, you know, Barbara in Ohio who's 24 that buys a bottle of milk every day, that's advertising. Mm-hmm. So you, that's pay for play. If you want a direct to know the numbers, the stats, do the Facebook advertising or whatever the advertising is. Podcasts, public relations, publicity. So that is earned media and that is all about exposure. So it's a different beast. It's not a direct sales. So you don't go on a podcast and then think, okay, well, I've been on that. Now I'm going to get X amount of books bought the next day. It's about building... um the exposure, the no like and trust factor and getting people into your ecosystem. And if you think about how many steps it is for somebody to buy something, if that's what you're going for, then going on one show and expecting them to buy a $1,200 course the next day Mm -hmm. is probably not realistic. So I would say setting the, and if they do, excellent, amazing, but it does expedite the no like and trust factor. If you're hearing someone for 30 minutes, that is far more valuable and jumps a lot of those touch point steps than reading a blog post or a quote in an article um, because you're hearing their voice for a, a long time and you're getting to, you know, you'll instantly know if you like the sound of their voice and if they know what they're talking about. So the ROI is measured in different ways, not just in a did I get a sale 
24 hours after the podcast going live. Mm. What, what are your thoughts on that, Blake? When I, was, when, and- when I was doing my first podcast and it was just me, uh, I was doing my own consulting for SEO specifically. And so a lot of it was just about building up my credibility as a thought leader, getting my name out there. Part of my podcasting strategy was, was the same as my LinkedIn strategy, was the same as my Instagram strategy. I was just trying to build my thought leadership, build my credibility, and then give away free information in the hopes that people would then see me as kind of a, an authority and say, if he's giving this away for free, then I wonder what actually is included in the consulting because it must be really great if this is just the free stuff. So that that was the the ROI for me really was you know, obviously people coming to me afterwards and saying, hey, I heard you on this podcast. I would be interested to learn more about what you do. That's how I knew that the podcast was was worthwhile. And obviously that was when I, I was doing a lot of small podcasts. So I would go on other people's podcasts or do my own podcasts for, you know, in, in small numbers. But that that really worked for me. And, and, and now it's obviously a totally different story as a host, but a lot of lessons learned, definitely. Yeah, so the ROI for you was people coming to you and wanting to find out more. Mm-hmm. So it's getting people into the, yeah. So I think some of that, like that, you're right, expert status. So if... um it's either going to elevate you if you're not at the level that you are at or it's going to reinforce your expert status. Mm-hmm. And then also exposure we're talking about, that's to new audiences, niche audiences and engaged audiences. And then the SEO I think we were talking about as well. And like 86% of podcast listeners listen to all or most of the podcasts. So you're getting a pretty good amount of time with people. That's Edi- that's the Edison research. And it's a warm introduction to the host. Don't discount the relationship with the host as an ROI because you can always have, that could be an affiliate deal, that could be a partnership, that could be if you've got a show and you're a guest on a show, inviting them back to your show. So ROI is measured in many different ways. Definitely. But the um, the thought leadership and the credibility is huge because you are given a platform and access to somebody else's audience and it's you for 30 to 60 minutes talking about everything that you know best. Mm, yep, yeah, definitely. And I'd be curious to know because since you've helped so many people get interviews with other great podcasts, small, large, you know, everywhere on the spectrum. But with those podcasts in particular that they've booked with, what have they done well to to grow or to attract the right guests like themselves? Oh, with, with shows attracting guests? Right. Oh, right. Well, there's two ways to think of that. One, are you pitching guests and inviting them to be on your show? In which case, everything I've said is reversed. Mm -hmm. And instead of having a one sheet, you you would have a one sheet, but it would be about the show. So it would be about the statistics. We have X amount of downloads, X amount of engagement, X amount, you know, you'd put all the statistics out there and you're trying to entice them to be on your show. If you're a show with two episodes, then that's not going to be as enticing to the guests that you're probably targeting um, if it's not established with an audience and a track record and they don't have the comps to, com- you know, the com- comparison of previous guests. Mm-hmm. So, and also with the press online press kit, that would be, you'd have it for the show. So you'd have previous episodes. Here's the run of show. Here's the questions that we'll ask. Here's an example. You're selling, it's buyer and seller. And the the buyer and seller role is inversed when you are a show trying to get guests on the show. Like we have done that with clients as well. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get those big guests to say yes on the show. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What What are some of the things you notice from podcasts that, that grow really well? For Like what are the lessons that you've seen from from those podcasts? Like, how how they get from zero to a hundred thousand listeners, how they speak to their right audience. Like what what do these podcasts do right that others don't? I think it's got to do with pushing out the content, repurposing the content and engagement with the audience. So repurposing what what what's the most effective way that you've seen it just like through social media, reposting links and things like that, or is there a more targeted way that you've seen really work? Yeah, so a lot of them, I mean, I was on a podcast and I got the socials through today to promote it and it was a 58-second beam. So it was a promo photo of me that they got from the press kit mm-hmm. and then snippets of audio pushed into um, a 60-seconder with a picture of the host and then branding of both things. That's easy for me to share. 
All I need to do is go on my LinkedIn, my Facebook, my Instagram, push that out to my audience, tag the show. And so they hosts are using their guests network as a way to promote the show, just as the guest is using the host network to reach their audience. So I would consider that cross promotion. And that's a smart way to build audiences. So having mm. guests on the show that have established audiences. So it works, it works both ways in that arena. Also, what are you doing with the content of the show? Are you just publishing the show and that's it? Or do you have a transcript? Do you have show notes? Are you pushing it out on um, YouTube? Mm-hmm. YouTube is the one of the biggest search engines in the world. So I think that having your podcast on YouTube is a smart thing, even though, yes, we know it's not audio first, it's video first. We know that. But you need to experiment while things are growing and algorithms are changing to see what works the best. Outside of YouTube, is there one particular social media platform that lends itself really well to redistributing podcast content? The way that I like doing it is getting a snippet from Facebook and then Mm -hmm. like the one that I was just talking about. And then I'll listen for 60 seconds and be like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I want to listen to the rest of that. Whether I'm going to listen to a full episode in Facebook, no, because I'm just scrolling through. Yep. Oh, excuse me. I'm just scrolling through. Also, I find a lot of engagement on LinkedIn. So I'm quite a fan of that at the moment. Definitely. LinkedIn. I mean, I'm more like, yeah, I'm more likely to see something on LinkedIn and go through to that mm -hmm. than I am on Facebook. I'm just there for a scroll and a photo, but LinkedIn, I'm going to spend more time and engage. Also, you can embed it in your content on the website. There's so many things you could do. That's what I mean. Just pushing out a podcast episode and they will come, I don't think is realistic. There's a lot of work on the other end that you need to do to in order to keep that audience going and wanting them come back for more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I recently interviewed somebody that all that they really touch is content redistribution. That's that's their main focus and, and talked a lot about this very thing that pushing publish on any piece of content is not the end. And if you consider it that way, then you're going to fail in your in your growing that audience or in your marketing in general. It's it's all about having a strategy after it's actually published and goes live that kind of separates the mediocre from the great. Yeah, like you can even put a recent episode on your email signature mm-hmm. and continually update that. How many emails do you send? I send thousands of emails. Is somebody going to click on it and listen while they're emailing out? Maybe, maybe not, but they will be aware that there is a podcast. So that is then on their radar. And every time they see that, it's in their eyeline. Again, the action isn't always instant. Sometimes it's like as a seed, a seed, a seed, a seed, a seed before someone takes action, which is anything. Mm -hmm. There's just so many more touch points today to get someone to take action. And I always suggest reverse engineer. If that was you and you saw the Facebook post, the LinkedIn post, the whatever iteration we're talking about, what action would you take realistically? And that's the way to think about how your audience thinks. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you're working on right now, what's going on in your life, and if there's anywhere that people can go to connect with you as well. Yeah, so thetalentsquad.com, that's our main website. And in there, if you're interested in learning how to DIY, it's talentsquadacademy.com. Mm-hmm. But yeah, talentsquad.com, you'll find everything you need from there. Awesome. And uh, and again, follow her on LinkedIn, Kelly Glover. Uh, are you on Twitter, Instagram actively, or is, is LinkedIn and Facebook are your two main? No, I'm on the other platforms and you can get Great. all the links from um, talentsquad.com. Actually, no, I'm not really on Twitter. I've kind of given, <laughs> I had to like drop something. I couldn't handle everything. It moves sure. too fast for me. So like LinkedIn is my jam at the moment. I'm loving it. Definitely. Great. Well, Kelly, it was a pleasure having you on. I know I learned a lot. So I know that other people are going to really run with this. And I think we're going to definitely up our, our podcast booking game. So I'm going to follow up with you and let you know the the success stories that we hear but I'm, I'm really excited about this yeah thanks Blake I think there's opportunities for everybody but treat yourself as a brand and as a media expert and then the op- your opportunities will be more frequent and bigger awesome and that's it for today's episode again if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning please go ahead and rate review and subscribe if you haven't already wherever you get your podcast we've got you covered anywhere you want 